1: I think that was probably the one that struck me. You know, I, I described like moving across the raft and feeling limbs. You know, I knew that there was limbs underneath me. They, 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 I knew that they, it was my crewmates in my raft with me, but the limbs that were under me, I didn't know whose they were. And I didn't know that it was people I was having to kneel on to get across the raft to help to close the door, that pe- people had died and were in our raft. And ultimately we were, you know, kneeling on them after they died to survive.
2: Welcome back to the Andy Rowe Show. Matt Lewis was an observer on board a doomed fishing boat in freezing waters of the South Atlantic Ocean. This is the story of firstly his attempts to save the boat from going under, then his actions to lead the operation to abandon ship, and finally his fight for survival against all odds. Before we start the episode, Packed Coffee is still offering you a free V60 kit when you sign up for a new plan at PackedCoffee.com if you haven't tried packed coffee yet you are missing out because when you create your monthly plan they deliver the fresh coffee through your letterbox it smells delicious and tastes even better i get the bagged coffee because i use a stove-top mocha pot and packed coffee does pods as well so if that's what you're after get involved just visit PackCoffee.com and use the code row at the checkout to get your free v60 kit i'll put all the details in the synopsis to this episode along with where you can get hold of matt lewis's book last man off hope you enjoy the episode Matt Lewis, thank you very much for coming on the show. Well, hi Andy, it's a joy to be here. Tell me how you ended up in South Africa. We'll get to the bit about the craziness that happened when you were at sea, but tell me how you ended up in South Africa for a start.
1: Well, I was uh, just qualified as a marine biologist. I'd just finished a degree in it at uh, Aberdeen University in Scotland, and I was looking for a job, and then this job came up uh, to be an observer, a scientific observer out on fishing boats in the South Atlantic so South Georgia I was looking around for a job for that sort of first bit of experience and decided to take it it was going to be a couple of months offshore sounded quite exciting so um, I took this the job as a scientific observer and flew out to South Africa from Aberdeen. So what does a scientific observer do? So a scientific observer is basically Uh, taken onto a fishing boat as a condition of the license so if they want to fish in those waters they've got to have a scientist on board and you're there to report back on what they're catching Uh, maybe if they're catching things they shouldn't be by accident like seabirds or uh, sharks and then also how much they're catching and it helps the uh, the managers to basically work out if there's enough fish left in the sea how long the season can carry on for but it also means you can keep an eye on what they're, if they're breaking any of the regulations uh, and things like that
2: you can 't be and, that popular on board, surely
1: actually, I was surprised at the reception that I got that the Suvid the crew of the Suda Harvid when I arrived on board were really welcoming I think after really? a short time at sea, I felt really like I was quite happy to be there i didn 't feel like I was being uh, made unwelcome in any way and when I looked uh, I think when things happened that maybe weren't ideal, I sort of raised my eyebrows and and, uh, the crewmen were told off quite sharply. It was like (laughs) (laughs) a perfect arrangement in a way. Tell me about the boat.
2: Um, You mentioned it there, the pseudo-Vet. Tell me about it. Tell me when when you first saw it. Give me sort of a description of it.
1: Yeah, so I took this job as a scientific observer and I flew out to Cape Town to join the boat. And um, uh, when I first saw Pseudo-Harvard in Cape Town Harbour, she was um, uh, (laughs) like old rusty smaller than I expected uh trawler she'd been built in Norway and um she'd served off the Faroe Islands as well so she'd been working in some fairly, fairly rough waters but but by the time she was down in Cape Town she was sort of past a prime rusty old navy blue boat from what I remember with with bright green decks and she's like just over 40 meters long so she's bigger than most of the fishing oh, wow. boats that you'll see in in British harbors but then she's you know she was she wasn't the biggest boat I'd ever seen by a long shot. So we turned up in Cape Town Harbour, and I, uh, I the her sister ship, the Northern Pride, was in front of her. And I, I then saw the the Harbour and thought, oh, what have I done? Why did I choose that ship there? Did you did you get like Miss it? Like did they give you like a glossy
2: brochure or something on their website that said it's a beautiful ship and you're going to be going on this lovely voyage? And you rock up and you you see this rusty old. Rusty. No, we had been um
1: we'd gone to the company offices in in London uh that were deploying us and and we'd be given the choice of the two boats. So um uh, Magnus and I, the two new observers, were going out to join the Northern Pride or the Suda Harvard. Which boat did we want? We were just asked and and you know, it was such a flippant decision. I was we were given this choice and and uh, the the lady who was sending us out said, Well, the officers on the Northern Pride are, are Spanish, so there's probably going to be a lot of, sort of Spanish-speaking people on board. And we think the, the has got English-speaking officers on board. So I said, well, I don't want to learn Spanish. I'll go to the Sudaharvids. Mm. And uh, that was the sort of flippant choice made. And Magnus said, well, I do fancy learning Spanish. I'll go on the Northern Pride. And he ended up on the bigger, shinier, nicer boat with his own cabin. And I ended up on a small, rusty, shithole bobbing <laughs> <laughs> like a duck. And I think I got the better deal. Right up until the end. What was what, what your cabin like? Uh, actually, compared to the cruise cabins, mine was quite nice. It was all right. It was kind of uh, you know veneered plywood inside with uh, two bunks, one for me, one for Glenn, who was the chief engineer on board, or second engineer, actually. But uh, anyway, me and Glenn and sharing a cabin. Um, each bunk's quite nice because you've got a little bit of, not privacy, but you've got your own space with a couple of drawers underneath to keep your personal possessions in. By the time we were actually fishing, the... Down in South Georgia, it was quite cold, so there was a little fan heater in the cabin, but that was the only uh, heat in that area. It was sort of minus seven outside, and um, minus seven, uh, yeah. And it's not luxury either. There's no ensuite facilities. There's it's one shared toilet between all the officers, and and then downstairs for the crew, it's a whole lot worse. So you're talking about six or eight guys to a room, triple decker bunks, not being able to roll over in your bunk because there's not enough room for your shoulders condensation dripping on you from the ceiling oh. and uh no showers uh for the crew and basically uh you know maybe two or three shared toilets for a crew of 30 oh <laughs> why would you do it oh and, my days uh, I think you'd have to be one of my uh friendly crewmates said he had his uh his clothes were stored under his mattress so by the time he had that and very tight room he couldn't roll over so when you first get on a boat like this
2: what is your initial feeling when you step aboard it? Obviously, it's a rusty old piece of work. You know, you talk about the, the cabins and things like that. Are, there. are you thinking, okay, where are the life jackets? How many lifeboats are there? Where's the safety briefing? What do I do if this happens? You must be thinking in your head, I've got to know this kind of stuff. What, tell me yeah. about that.
1: In my head I was thinking that sort of stuff. I'd been on uh, a research trawler before, up in Scotland, just for a bit of work experience, and a few weeks on that, and I'd been on yachts and, you know, other boats before. So I'd I'd done sort of sailing, diving and, and a bit of work. So I knew that normally when you get onto a boat, people will explain exactly that. And on the big trawler we'd done uh, drills like evacuation drills, muster stations and things. And donning survival suits. And when I got onto the Suda Harvard, I was expecting that and it never happened. So I did, you know, work out for myself where the life rafts were. I found out that the life jackets were in a locked cupboard so they didn't get stolen. There were no survival suits on board and I hadn't been issued with one either. Like sometimes if you're going out to things like that then you'll be taking your own kit with you. But basically there was very little kit. There were life rafts there, but uh, other than that, there was hardly any talk of safety on board. So there were no tours or drills or anything like that. You say that the life jackets were locked away. One guy had the key. That was one of the deck bosses called Shakim. That was so that they, well, I think they had, had problems in the past with uh, basically uh, uh, crew <laughs> crew stealing the life jackets and going and uh, uh, taking them off to the, uh, to the shop to sell them when they got to land. You'd think maybe um, a few stolen life jackets would be all right for sort of a collateral
2: damage, almost like a, an yeah. investment to make sure that everyone can get them when they need them. So
1: where, where were you sailing to when you when you get on the boat? So you're sailing to, just say, Georgia? So we sailed out of Cape Town, and uh, we sailed down to South Georgia. And if you know where Cape Horn is, at the bottom of South America, so the Falkland Islands are across from that, and South Georgia is down towards Antarctica from there. So we were right down towards the end. An- uh, sort of Antarctic waters um, it took a couple of weeks for us to sail down there and you actually go across a couple of big changes in ocean currents that mean that, that the waters we were fishing in were very cold and very rough so people have probably heard of the roaring 40s and we were yeah. even further south than that Were there loads of icebergs? Uh, we saw a few there we saw massive icebergs so big enough that they show up on on the radar they look like islands and you know hundreds of meters across so we saw those and we saw icebergs in the bay um when we picked up our license in south georgia
2: what kind of fish were you after down there
1: so we were going to be well we were catching toothfish which um it's actually sold in the in restaurants as Chilean and sea bass because uh, toothfish doesn't sound very nice but they're enormous great big predators that live in really deep water down towards the antarctic if i was describing them they're ugly they get up to about two metres in length. The biggest ones we were catching weighed the same as me so they can weigh sort of up to 100 kilos but the ones we were catching are sort of 70-75 kilos. Enormous group of things they can live 50-60 years maybe longer. Um, if you look inside their mouth they've got huge teeth that curve back in their mouth so if they catch hold of a fish or a squid then the more it wriggles the more it gets trapped by their teeth. But their flesh when you basically when you fillet them, it produces this pure white soft fillet that's brilliant for sort of fusion cuisine so they mm. um, you know Dick Cheney served it at his daughter's wedding because it's a, a lovely sort of soft neutral
2: fish. And how cold was it at this point because you mentioned the, the water at one point was negative one.
1: You are wearing a lot of layers uh, as an idea if I was out on deck I would be wearing uh, like normal underwear then thermal underwear then a pair of jeans and then a freezer suit, which is like a uh, an insulated suit, and then oil skins on top of that. And on my top, I'd have probably two jumpers and then a fleece and then oil skins on top of that. So you're wearing layer after layer. And on your hands, you'd have liner gloves and then waterproof gloves and a hat. Like all of us are wearing woolly hats like all the time.
2: Didn't you guys have to hit a certain quota for your employers before you went home? So... You, know, you had to go and catch so much fish to finish the job.
1: Yeah, well, basically with that fishery, uh, the way it's managed, uh, you're trying to catch as much fish as you can in the time that you're allowed to be there. So it's a race. Uh, ah. You know, um, Your listeners may be uh, familiar with this because of things like Deadliest Catch, where they'll declare the crab season open and every boat is racing to catch as much crab as it can before the fisheries closed. And it was the same with us. So the fishery opened on April the 1st. We'd arrived late the race was on to catch as much fish as we could before the fishery was closed. And that was at some point in the next couple of months. And so we were basically racing to catch as much as we could. And the, the pseudo Harvard could hold just over a hundred tons of catch. And we were catching sort of two tons a day. wasn't enough. They were expecting to catch like 10, 20 tons a day and they weren't catching anywhere near that. So they were, you know, racing to catch fish.
2: Tell me about the Korean tanker. Cause you, you refueled at
1: a Korean tanker, didn't you? Yeah, so end of May we uh the company made the choice that instead of basically to allow us to stay out at sea for a little bit longer, we would go and refuel, then make a midway land in a few weeks later. So we went to the Falkland Islands and just outside of their, their waters, then we would refuel from the Haigong Yu number three hundred two, which is it was this big Taiwanese tanker that we took on fuel from. Basically they send a line across to you that you then pull in and that pulls across the hose and you can fill up in the pseudo harbards case that meant we took on over 100 tons of diesel and it is basically heavy fuel oil, diesel that we filled up with actually that was quite a critical moment for us i think because what had happened was we'd been catching fish we had a hold that was filling with fish and then we'd taken on another 100 tons of diesel and normally you would get rid of the fish as you took on the diesel but we we had both so our little boat was carrying us and fish and diesel did you feel like at that point that maybe you were a little bit overloaded? Uh from my point of view I I was quite naive. It was my first trip on a big commercial fishing boat like that. I might have been on trawlers before. Uh sorry, research trawlers before, but you um you know I wasn't involved with those and uh the fishermen knew the boat a lot better than, than me and it was the fishermen that pointed out to me that the boat was sitting low in the water. So I, I hadn't noticed much, but but uh one of the fishermen said to me, I think it was Danny who said to me one day about the fact that uh there was water swilling in and out of uh, a bit of the of the boat that wouldn't normally be water on the side of the boat she'd been modified and there had been a like a balcony had been added in the side of the boat and the bottom of of this balcony basically was designed to drain away and normally the water would have drained out but after we refueled water was actually swilling in and out of there so the boat was sitting so low in the water that the seawater was actually coming in and out of the drains in the side of the boat and um it was it was Darnie that said, you know, normally that was not there. We're sitting low, and it it didn't feel any different to me. I, I just assumed that was you know okay, but uh, you know later on, I think that was to prove important. Was it Darnie that
2: warned you that things could turn ugly between the crew if something happened to the ship?
1: Yeah, strange conversations that you know afterwards you realise are important. Was one one day. Uh, we have been talking and, and Darnie and his friend Eugene, you know, we have been chatting and, and they'd said about the fact that, you know, watch your knives. And I thought, oh, that's strange. And and they said, watch your knives. One day, you know, you need to know where they are. One day if there's a, if we have to abandon ship, then people will fight with knives for a place on the raft. And I thought, you know, that's, that doesn't Jeez. match up with the the very British way that I expect everybody to uh, politely cue and to help each other. And, you know, that of course we'll all, join together you know good blitz spirit to to help uh overcome the obstacle and the idea that somebody would actually fight you off for with a knife for a place on a life raft is just uh is, it didn't compute i didn't think it was going to happen so um you know again that was sort of one of those conversations that later on comes back to you did you watch your knives not very well. No, I <laughs> I did know where they were, uh, but no, I uh, you know I I did keep an eye on them, but I wasn't. Uh, I just thought that Danny was probably making not making it up, but I thought he was probably overplaying it. You know, mm.
2: it's hard to you would, wouldn't sp- you? You'd be like, yeah, yeah, okay. You just wouldn't think that's going to happen.
1: Tell me about the night that you were working in the factory. I suppose we came back from. Uh, filling up with fuel at the reefer and we we had a couple of good days fishing but actually nearly a week of good fishing so you know we were catching a bit more than we had done it wasn't amazing but we were catching fish so we were starting to fill up the hold so starting to feel good but then we woke up one day and the weather was just worse than it had been you know when you wake up and on a boat quite quickly you can feel that you're being thrown around a bit more and I looked out on deck and I was like oh really I've got to work in that and um, I went downstairs and had my scrambled eggs and chives. Not good because it makes you burp all day. But anyway, I went out on deck and tried to work that morning. I was observing out on deck, so actually watching the line come on board. And it was just hilarious. You know, you, the, the boats are going up and down and side to side, like such a crazy amount that you're having to hold on. And I was supposed to make notes about what was coming on board in those conditions. So I had a, my arm up inside a polythene bag with a clipboard with a piece of paper on it. Making a note of what was coming in on each hook for an hour. Can you not just just have a day
2: off? Can you, like, you're the observer? I don't think the fishermen are going to care if you're not out there.
1: The fisherman wouldn't have given it, but it was like a personal pride thing that I was being paid to be there, so I was going to damn well be out on the deck. And frankly, if, if you want to turn around to a fisherman and say, oh, it's a bit too rough, I can't be on, out on deck today, then they're going to turn around and say, well, I've got to be out there. Oh, it was all right for me, because after two hours on deck, I went back inside and just went up onto the bridge and was watching what was happening below. And I mean, you're talking about people actually being washed around on deck. It is like something out of The Deadliest Catch. Your whole waves moving along the deck and hitting you on the back of the head and flooding the guy opposite you just flooding down his oil skins you know do people so, not fall not off, off the calm. boat people nearly did there was quite there was guardrails around the edge and people you know got washed towards them most of the fishermen are pretty good about looking the, the way that they move around a boat is quite an education to watch like it took me a while to get used to it and some of them say you, you know you never walk when the when the boat is tipping away from you you never walk down the hill you don't walk down the deck you wait until the boat rolls back because otherwise you're going to lose control of your yourself and end up like falling into something or falling over the side. I didn't see anybody sort of actually get pushed by the wave to the point of being pushed over the edge because that's what the guardrails are for, but it can be you know pretty scary. Huh? You know, one of the guys got caught by a hook one day and nearly pulled over the side, but that's oh. very different. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't even bear oh. thinking about. It. But uh, sorry, uh, I was saying about being out on deck and the day that we hit trouble that you know the waves were absolutely enormous. They were the biggest waves I'd seen. That trip and and the biggest waves I'd seen by some long shot, they weren't like really steep. So it wasn't like, uh, you know, sort of waves that you would surf. They were big ocean swells, but they were picking the boat up and you'd rise slowly up the swell. And then when you got to the crest, then the boat would tip. And it's quite a nice moment when you whoosh down the wave, but but when she hits the next wave, then the bow would disappear into the into the
0: oh, next my wave, stomach.
1: and then it's just just this moment when you're waiting, you're thinking, is she going to come back up? You know, and they always do, you know. So slowly, the water would, would then come back along the deck, and that, that's how your day goes, is just like that, wave after wave. It. Yeah, I had the the morning out on deck, and then uh, I was due to be down the factory. That afternoon, for some observations down there, and it's worth people knowing that on that boat the factory was an enclosed area. It was like, a, it really, was like a sort of kitchen or something like that. But but it was a factory below decks, so you were I was on the same level as the sea, and and I went down in the afternoon. There's no windows. There's a few hatches, but there's no windows, so it's quite you know you're inside a moving factory that's going side to side and up and down. But we've been at sea so for so long, you're just used to it. So I was working in this factory in the afternoon, and I'd gone down there. And one of the fishermen had said, said, oh yeah, the observer's going to get wet today, you know, and um, I said, oh yeah, whatever. We had quite a good, kind of nice banter on that boat, it was very good atmosphere. But I I started my observations in the afternoon, and that basically meant collecting some fish, dissecting out the ear bones, which was quite a delicate task, and then uh, weighing them and, and watching just what was going on around me. But when I'd gone down there, then there'd been a little bit of water going backwards and forwards, and the deck of the of the Harvard was tread plate so the metal plate with little grips on it and you could hear it kind of making a nice tinkling sound as it went across it's in a world of like noisy diesel engines and and, and yelling fishermen it was actually quite a nice sound but i can remember that sort of tinkling sound going side to side but during my observations that afternoon it, it, the water started building up and we've been having problems with these pumps that basically were supposed to clear the factory and i looked around and all the other fishermen were laughing and joking. Nobody seemed particularly worried and people had been taking video of it to, to show their families back home with a, an old video camera and things. So I thought, right, well, you know, nothing to worry about here. But then actually you start thinking, right, hold on, this isn't right. You know, we need some he- help here. Why are we still fishing? Why, uh, you know, so I went off to try and get help from, or I told people at first, but then I went off myself to go and try and get help from the engineers or from mechanics and from the electrician, uh, and eventually i went up to the bridge to say to the to the skipper and the fishing master to say that bubbles and Buty, you know that we we needed help
2: was bubbles the skipper
1: yeah a bit of a weird setup on the suda Havid was that we had uh, bubbles was effectively the skipper so he was in charge of the boat when it wasn't fishing Buty was in charge of the boat when it was fishing so he was the fishing right. master but we also had this icelandic guy called bjorgvin Who'd been taken on the boat as a as a captain because they needed somebody with a, a higher certificate to insure the boat when she was off on the high seas. That's what I'd been told. So basically, Bjorgovin was there as what they call a paper captain, but like a token captain. but he and Bubbles were in charge, and and I walked up onto the bridge, and uh, I said, "You know, skipper, you know we we've, we've got a bit of water in the factory," and I was trying not to make too big a deal of it, but I said said it like that, and he said, "Yeah, we know, Matt. Shut your door on the way out." And I I was just so taken aback because they were really nice guys. They've been very good with me, like, the whole time we've been out at sea. And and just the way that I was dismissed from the room and uh, how blunt they've been with me. I, I, you know, I walked out and I was kind of, you know, just felt been pushed away. I went back down to the factory to try and see what else we could do. But it it was an absurd situation when you've got... um, a boat that's in trouble uh, or a crew rather that's in trouble in the factory and the skipper and the fishing master wouldn't even come down to come and see what what, what was up.
2: You mentioned you had pumps and you were trying to find an engineer or an electrician or someone to, to fix it. Yeah. Did you have any engineers on board that could fix it?
1: Yeah, so on a fishing boat, the mechanics are basically referred to as engineers. So we had um, a chief engineer, Klaus, second engineer, Glenn, who's my cabin mate. We then had... Um, like a number of uh well we had an, another engineer called Alpheus like who was supposed to be helping and then a, another young guy called uh, little Darny different different Darny uh, who was uh, just as kind of an assistant and then there was also an electrician called Melvin as well so the, the, you know basically there was a lot of people who were mechanically inclined like they they were there, it was their their job to be there and do that um but the absurd thing was that uh, Melvin had been trying to fix these electrical pumps but when i tried to get help help from the other engineers then nobody would come nobody would come and actually help what were they doing in the factory uh oh, klaus was off duty so he was asleep as he should be but you know they were one of them said he was busy with the engine and you know Alpheus wouldn't come into the factory either so basically they were you know the factory was obviously wet there was water water building up but i i don't know why they were quite so resistant to coming into the factory you know just get on some wellies and get in there mm. and come and help us. And, uh, that was what I couldn't understand as an outsider. I didn't understand why they weren't coming in to help us.
2: At what point did you realise the gravity
1: of the situation and think this boat's going to sink? The water had been building up in the factory. We tried getting this pump down off the wall, a di- big diesel standby pump, like a fire pump, that we couldn't get started. So, and Melvin had not managed to rig up the electric pumps even a standby so so basically we had water coming in and there was no water leaving we couldn't get the pumps to work and the water had been building up and at, at a point just Darny big Darny said hey Matt can I borrow one of your knives and I passed him this filleting knife and he took it and stabbed it into the chopping block next to him and it just stood there like stuck in this chopping block point first next to him and he said there now it is ready and that was the moment when I thought oh shit we are in trouble if Darny thinks that we you know he's telling me this is we're gonna have to abandon you know really I I, I still didn't want to believe it but that was a big moment when I knew we were in trouble so I'm looking at this big filleting knife <laughs> stuck in a, a chopping block and thinking oh that's a big message but from a personal point of view then we we were still trying to save the boat Darny, having taken the knife you know then still carried on there were a, maybe half a dozen of us in the factory still trying to get these pumps to work still trying to save the ship the other 32 people were elsewhere but we were still trying and uh, I'm of no use you know I didn't know anything about mechanics but I was trying to you know maybe get the uh, one thing I remember doing was taking the hoses across from the standby pump to, to get them ready to go outside to discharge when the pump started so I was trying to help with things like that and trying to clear filters and things but but ultimately uh, other people knew better but how are you not
2: going up to the other engineers and going guys this boat's going to fucking sink if you don't get your asses down to the factory and fix these fucking pumps it's gonna sink
1: i wish i had done exactly that but you know when i tried to get glenn my cabin mate into the factory at first he literally just you know said i said to him pretty much that you know glenn we need you in the factory now the boat's in trouble you know we need help with this and his reaction was why are you shouting at me and then why am i shouting at you <laughs> yeah, i know and then uh you know the engineers oh i did manage goodness. to get eventually glenn came in to the factory and we managed to get he showed me how to clear this filter the bottom and we got like one of the pumps working for a moment and for a moment i looked at this pump sitting in this cavity in the factory floor and the water drained down and i thought yes the pump's working and then i clicked that the pump had been working but there was no more water coming across and that was the moment when the ship stopped rolling so instead of the water rolling from side to side the water was all lying on one side of the boat and then this horrible light goes on, on in your head that oh shit the boat's lying on one side and I looked across and the water was nearly touching the ceiling on the starboard side of the boat. And the lights were flickering. And then you're like, that's it. You know, she's not coming back up. So the boat was over and she was knocked down on one side and, and she didn't come back up. You know, she was swaying a little, but basically that was it. And, uh, and you're shortly like, after that.
2: Don't worry, engineers, you can go back to bed. I'm getting off the
1: ship. Yes, yes. <laughs> that would have been lovely. But we didn't know where the nearest fishing boat was like we are in an empty part of the world where basically there is no shipping passing through the only other boats that we knew of down there were the other fishing boats and a part of my job was that i had to know like if i'd seen any other boats that might be fishing illegally so poachers if they were down there we had to keep an eye on it and i mm. knew there were no other boats in our on our radar screen so there were no other boats for miles around us so when i i looked up from this problem you know you know i realized that the boat was lying over on one side and i saw flashes of orange and it was the life jackets being thrown into the factory so somebody had broken open the locked cupboard with an axe <laughs> firefighting axe and smashed it open got the life jackets out very good quick thinking on their part and and was throwing basically had thrown a load of life jackets down to the factory and they were throwing them out i climbed up on a uh, a bench and uh, like a workbench and climbed out of the factory along the corridor to avoid the flooding leaving behind just uh a few crews mornay and big danny and that you know harness and i came out of the factory and found a life jacket There's been they've been thrown down the stairs i found one scrambled up the stairs and got up to the top stuck my head out the door and there were the rest of the crew all lined up very neatly dressed in oil skins with life jackets on looked like they were waiting for the bus i said to my one of my friends trevor like oh, what's happening are we abandoning or what yeah 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 we're abandoning <laughs> oh shit you know like it's just hadn't properly struck me i I know i I, i've said to you that when i saw the knife being stuck in the block that i knew we were in trouble but i i don't think i'd actually computed i I, you know i was 24 and i don't think i'd actually realized the gravity of the situation that we would be abandoning and abandoning when there were no boats nearby like i knew there were no boats nearby so then you start thinking right we're getting off the boat what are we getting off the boat onto well there's no, no nobody else coming to rescue us like you still hope that somebody's going to magically swan up like you see in the movies, but, but there was no boats.
2: Is the sea still, as you said before, this massive of rolling waves?
1: Yeah, like huge and oh snow, snow flurries. So, snow, uh, flurries. Got, okay. yeah, got snow flurries, okay. Yeah, you've got snow flurries just to liven up a bit. And you know the wind was whipping the surface off, the, the the top of the waves off. And so each wave is streaked with foam. You know, it's just the fury of a storm like that you know you're looking I, I do remember looking down into the waves at one point it pretty much looks like a cauldron you know you got sort of water boiling next to the boat where it's just being thrown around and um I ducked back into my cabin and I thought right shit I need to just you know just just need a moment to get get my thoughts together so I ducked back into my cabin everything was like the curtains were hanging away from the wall because uh, of the angle of the boat and, things. and I thought, right, I need, I need my I need my deck suit because I had this, I didn't have a survival suit, but I did have this waterproof suit that had a bit of foam in it that's designed to basically help you to float if you get knocked in. So it's like a work suit that will help you to float. And uh, so I went up to the chimney where it was drying and um, the heat of the exhaust basically helped things to dry up there. And I went in through this enormous waterproof door found my suit I was worried that the crew would see it and try and take it from me or fight me for it so I thought I'll do it in here so I shut the door and then I very nearly got stuck inside because the angle of the boat basically meant I couldn't get this huge metal waterproof door open again I was stuck inside the chimney this enormous engine casing with the engine still running and this exhaust you know it's lovely and warm in there but I'm stuck half in half out of this suit and can't get the door open but luckily the boat sort of just swayed a little bit, and I managed to toss the door open and shoot back out on deck like some comedy actor, you know, with a, a suit around my waist, and one arm in, one arm out, rubber glove on, run rubber glove off, and uh, I got the suit on, and that was it. You know, I, I looked across, and Shakim, big Portuguese deck boss, was getting ready to launch a life raft. Uh, you know, they looked like enormous, great big capsules, sort of pills, on the deck of the boat, and he was getting ready to launch one. Are they inflatable life rafts or are they what are they what are they made of yeah so they're the classic things that you'll have seen on ferries or on fishing boats or harbors it's a big it looks like a big white pill but inside when it cracks open there's two fiberglass case parts that crack open so when it if the boat sinks they'll release automatically and if they're discharged beforehand then basically the fiberglass case will open and inside protected by the fiberglass there's an inflatable raft okay so an inflatable tent with uh, a floor on it that will basically act like a little m- mini inflatable boat that you can all get into. And we had four of them. And so I went across to Shakim, and he was next to this big capsule in a cradle and he was cutting away the the lines that secured it. So cutting away the automatic cradle, basically, so that we could discharge it and get it into the water. And, you know, we looked at Bubbles and said... The captain? Yeah, Sipper. and said, ready? And Bubbles said, hold on a minute. Took his fag, his cigarette and flicked it out to sea. And it spiralled off, and he said, now. And we pushed the first life raft. And it hit the water, and it didn't inflate. Oh, God. And they pulled on the painter, like the, the rope that attached it. They pulled on that, and they're supposed to...
0: Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments.
1: To trigger it and nothing happened and there's just this white fiberglass thing is just floating in the sea and nothing's happening and but you know i'd never seen one launch before i hadn't done a survival skills course as much as i should have done one and this thing just bobbed there and then so we got the next one ready and pushed that one that one landed <laughs> nearly landed on the crew on the deck below but it actually <laughs> managed to miss people and cracked open on the deck but then they manhandled it over the side and that one inflated and uh so we said to to bubbles like we're going to do the other rafts and he said oh no no i think that's enough i wouldn't bother so uh shakim and i ignored him and went round to the starboard side and launched the other ones and in total we launched three life rafts so enough spaces for all of us so there was uh 38 men on board and we had enough spaces and those life rafts were well over that
2: is an element of you being in charge with like making some decisions here but Obviously, you're nowhere near like the 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 level where you should be making decisions. Were there not officers or they're, they're not people on board that were, were helping out or or that were directing things to?
0: Yeah,
1: yeah, you'd hope so, but no, it was a sad thing. Was there was no call to abandon ship? There was no siren, no like announcement. We we had a tunnel they could have used, you know, but there was nothing like that. When I looked around for people to tell me what to do because I needed guidance. There was nobody. And, you know, things like Shakeem launching the life rafts, it was just him taking it on himself to do mm. it. He, he was an officer too, but he was ready to do it. But there was nobody taking control and doing it. So I was supposed to be a, like an officer on board, but just just because that meant I got looked after better, basically. So that I wasn't, you know, I wasn't expected to have any responsibilities on board. But I was like, well, you know, somebody's got to tell these guys what to do. So, you know, whether it was trying to get help from the engineers or whether it was you know helping with launching life rafts or just trying to make sure people were ready to go i tried my best just to make sure that the crew were felt like somebody was organizing them and felt like somebody was looking after them because bubbles and booty weren't saying anything and neither were the other deck bosses you know like the bosuns so
2: describe the situation around actually getting into these rafts so you've you've cut them loose they're landing in the
1: water i presume yeah the wind was so strong that how do you get in there you know, the, the wind was so strong that they were being blown towards the stern of the boat. So that that was the kind of gathering point. But I was trying to make sure that the crew were ready and good to go. And then we started trying, like nothing happened. The rafts were at the stern and nobody was getting into them. So Charlie and I started yelling, basically, get into the rafts, like, go, go, because nobody was given an order to abandon ship. So I thought, right, we it's time to go, let's was he not it was a big awesome. drop
2: from the from the ship to the rafts? Like how so the keep- way
1: she was sitting, it wasn't too bad actually. The stern of the Harvid was quite low because oh, okay. the way the trawler is. So a couple of meters. Sometimes the stern was well above the raft. You know, like probably four meter drop. But at other points, the rafts were nearly up. You know, towards the railings that you could would have been able to just sort of almost step into it. We started getting the crew to jump into the rafts. Most of the time, they were jumping down. You know, just dropping from nearly head height, just dropping into the rafts, and they were fine. When we'd launched the rafts and I'd looked towards the back, I'd seen Shakeem and Carlos in a raft and I would said to myself, if that, when I get to the stern, I'm getting in that raft because those guys have been at sea for years. They're going to know what they're doing. So I'm going to get in that raft there. And I, so I'd selected the raft like for myself, thinking that will be the best chance. But when I got down to there, I saw their raft drifting away and there was only a, two of them on board and... I, I don't know, you know, to this day, I don't know why they cut away from the boat when there were only a few of them in the raft. I I think there may may well have only been two of them in the raft. I would like to think maybe they had seen somebody in the water they were trying to help. You know, maybe they needed to get to somebody or maybe they had felt threatened and they'd needed to leave the boat. But I, I didn't see any of that. But either way, I looked up and I saw their raft drifting away, only two of them on it. And I thought, oh, bastards. Just bastards! What have you done? Like you know. So then we we just got on with it, getting the rest of the crew off into the two remaining rafts. So so basically we the people were going gradually. The you know having been warned that there would be fights with knives, there was nothing. Everybody queued in a very orderly fashion wow. and uh, basically made their way to the stern of the boat. So the the crew. This is you know. Eventually, I got to the back with them and looked down at, and I looked back along the boat to check that there was nobody left. I thought that's the moment to go. And then Bjorgvin the Icelandic captain pops out of the door <laughs> so I went back to him and I was like Bjorgvin what are you doing and he said he'd, he'd just woken up somebody had just woken him up oh, he'd been bliss. asleep through all of this so with everything happening he'd been fast asleep and uh he'd been woken from obviously a deep slumber to, to, to scrabbled into his deck suit and grabbed a life jacket and came out on deck and how did he get woken up I think Bubbles had knocked on his door on the way out, basically, and uh, so Bjorgovin walked out, out on to find us basically having abandoned the ship. He missed the whole of the sinking. I mean, to be fair to him, uh, you know, he w- he was supposed to be off shift, and he may have been the captain on board, but they didn't treat him like that. You know, he wasn't involved in the day-to-day running of the boat. So,
2: what a they, thing to wake
1: up to! I said, right, you know, uh, basically, we're abandoning get to the back of the boat now and, and then I got back to the back of the boat again to the stern and, and was getting ready and then he still wasn't there and I said well, <laughs> where is he now so I went back to find him and he, he was pulling something and he, and he was basically helping Bubbles who'd collapsed in some of the water I, I'd missed him and Bubbles had collapsed coming down from the bridge Björgvin was helping him up and Bubbles was still wearing basically jogging pants and a jumper and collapsed in the water, and he was helping him to the back of the boat, and I I got Bjorgovin to give him his life jacket, I couldn't get mine off, it was like almost welded on, because I'd done such a bad job of tying the knots, and Bjorgovin gave Bubbles his life jacket, and we got him to the back of the boat, Bjorgovin got over the rail and got into the life raft that was closest to us, and then I think I vaguely remember manhandling Bubbles over the railing, but I ended up, I can remember him being by my feet, and me holding him between my feet, and at the rail and waiting for the life raft to come in next to him. He was a big guy as well, so I can't believe I actually manhandled him over. But he was, uh, he, you know, he just wasn't right. He looked grey in the face. So I think we think afterwards he maybe had a heart attack or something. But I looked down at Bubbles and then I wait, waited for the raft to rise up. And then I dropped him in and the, the crew waiting below with their arms ready for him, caught him and helped him into the raft. And then I turned around and looked at the Harbor for the last time and then I jumped. Last man off. Yeah, last man off. Felt like I was jumping into a ball pool at a kid's party. I like, I think I even whooped because I was like the thrill of getting off the boat and thinking, you know, and just being daft and not realising just what was ahead, you know, that, that I jumped into there and I was basically pleased to be off the sinking ship. But yeah, last man off. Didn't mean to be. Didn't want to be. <laughs> Wanted somebody to tell me, you know, what was going to happen and how everything was going to be all right and that, you know, go and disembark over there. But that's not the way it worked out.
2: Sorry about the interruption. Coming up next week, we're getting topical and talking energy with one of the world's leading experts, climate scientist, Andrew Dessler. We can fix this. I mean, the important thing for your audience to know, if they they remember anything else, or if they remember nothing else, this is what I hope they remember. And that is that, you know, climate and energy is not a scientific problem. You know, we understand climate change. It's not a technical problem. We know how to generate energy without releasing greenhouse gases that are causing climate change. It's a political problem. It's politicians who are beholden to fossil fuel interests. It's the war in Ukraine. It's all of these political problems that we have to solve in order to transition the world uh, to one that isn't, whose climate is not changing due to humans. It's a hard one to solve. That's coming up next week. Now back to Matt Lewis. Once you're on the raft, the ship then becomes the danger, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, so Suda Harvard is lying low in the water and and being moved around by the waves and the wind. And she basically was, we were being forced underneath her by the wind and banged against her. And at one point she came down and the sort of underside of the hull came crushing down on us. And and I can remember trying trying to push back and punch against her, like just completely futile. And then the big arch at the back that supported the old trawl wires from her old days, you know, there's this enormous steel arch made of girders, came crashing down on the raft and just crushed through the roof of the raft just is only held up by an inflatable tube but came crushing down just squashed us underwater and and flooded the raft with water and i mean when i've said to you that the water was minus one you know you think that then you would remember the feeling of water and i don't i think we've been so Battle hardened from being pelted with water all the time. And I was so pumped up with adrenaline. I, I don't even remember, like, particularly the, the w- water taking my breath away. Maybe we were fighting the gantry so hard, the arch, you know, maybe we were fighting that so hard that yeah, it didn't strike me. We were basically flooded with seawater. And then the gantry went away. And eventually we got free of the ship and managed to cut away from her and, and we drifted away. My gosh.
2: My gosh. So the whole raft is inflatable.
1: Am I right? So it's it's like tubes around the edge, like a mm. ring. Uh, the sort of three tubes that are inflatable, and then there's an archway over the top that's inflatable that holds up a canvas uh, cover. And there's a floor made of rubber. That basically, if you imagine a big paddling pool mm. with a roof over the top, that's a life raft. It's just In- made out of heavier gauge rubber.
2: What shape is it?
1: Uh, like a ra- like a paddling pool. It- it's round, yet okay. with a with an arch roof over the top. So just if you imagine a kid's paddling pool with a tent on top. That's a life raft. So it looks like a little floating circus tent. Yes, yes. I think our one was built for fourteen men. So you're talking about it being like probably three meters, four meters in diameter. If we all sat down in it, we could have probably nearly touched toes. So, right. If so if you're
2: all sitting down and you had your legs out straight, you, your feet would all pretty much move yeah, in the nearly yeah. yeah, nearly. Okay, yeah, so, so you had a bit of room. So they're quite big. Okay. Yeah. Once it's full of water, yeah. Can you get rid of that water?
1: We try tried to bail. So they're supposed to come with little kits, like survival kits that include things like balers. Like modern ones, they'll be better designed. They'll have, you know, basically drains in the floor or pumps built in to try and get rid of it. But our one, we looked for balers, we couldn't find any of the kits. I don't know if they were ever there or if they have been lost, but we couldn't find them. So we tried using welly boots from the few people who had them on. Uh, That didn't work because they folded. And we had, uh, strangely, we had a Nescafe jar. I don't know why we had a coffee jar, but there we go. I don't know if one of the uh, crew was trying to use that to keep the cigarettes dry or something, but but that was the other thing. That that worked a little bit. Basically, we tried to bail the raft with Wellington boots and uh, and, and an S-Cafe jar. And that, you know, when you're faced with several thousand litres of seawater it just wasn't working we tried bailing for a while but every time we bailed more water was just coming in even when we shut the doors then we were still getting water coming in because from the waves that were still pelting us so facing facts after a while of bailing we were taking more water in than we were getting out does it not sink or it was full of water it wasn't keeping us you know we're up to our waists in water but it wasn't Sinking, but it was going softer as time went on. Instead of bobbing around on the surface of the sea, ours was was being squashed by the swells. So the swells would come along as the swells lifted us, so they'd squash the life raft from side to side, and you know, move us around. And it felt like we were going to flip over at points. So horrible feeling. And you know, we, we did try to bail. You know, the other raft that got away at the same time you know they managed to bail away the water they got so they had a much drier raft inside and they were able to get organized and they could get themselves sitting with their legs in a circle and bracing for the swells but our raft was just in tatters you know i don't know how much damage we had taken but we had no light on the top there's supposed to be a light to signal your presence like a flashing light there we had no radio beacons normally you'd have like bags with radio beacons to alert uh, rescuers where you might be we had no rations not that we needed those but no bailers the raft was flooded we were overladen. by the time we pulled one guy out of the water we had 17 of us in the raft it was quite crowded you know at first it was quite noisy quite chaotic but after a while people started going quiet so You know, you notice that, uh, well, in retrospect, you notice that there was less noise as time went on. Were people dying? or? Yeah, but at the time, I don't think I knew that. I thought they'd just gone quiet, and that seems absurd. It seems so naive now. But when, you know, now I know about cold water shock. The sheer shock of the cold water on your skin can always a drop in blood pressure basically gives you a heart attack that's probably the biggest killer and then hypothermia takes time to set in you know even in water that cold you can survive as we were probably for a good deal of time before hypothermia properly sets in you know you're not going to die of hypothermia for more than half an hour at least and we were in there for longer than that but certainly at first cold water shock and then hypothermia was starting to affect people and people went quiet I, i remember people screaming you know just wailing and heartlessly me saying who's screaming like shut up because it it just grated when you've got you know when you're fighting to survive and somebody's wailing it's just it saps away your energy to survive so heartlessly I told them to shut up but that was them probably on their way out jeez you know looking back I saw I looked around there's one guy I I can remember much later on and I I looked across and Trevor who is this lovely guy with a big beard who I had been working with on the deck that morning and we'd been joking about him giving me a haircut and stuff and then he'd, I looked at him and he was floating there in his life j- jacket, sort of the collar was cupped up around his beard and he was just floating on his back, he looked so peaceful and I kind of knew he was dead, didn't quite compute but I, I kind of knew that he was I think that was probably the one that struck me You know, I, I described like moving across the raft and feeling limbs You know, I knew that there was limbs underneath me I knew that there was, it was my crewmates in my raft with me, but the limbs that were under me, I didn't know whose they were. And I didn't know that it was people I was having to kneel on to get across the raft to help to close the door. That people had died and were in our raft. And ultimately, we were, you know, kneeling on them after they died to survive.
2: So there were people that died and they had sunk. Into the raft, yeah, I, uh, You know, all of a sudden,
1: when as I moved across the raft, I felt ra- uh, the legs, and I, I think in my head, I th- I thought there were the survivors around me. It was their legs that you know they, we we were feeling. But one of the fishermen described feeling something suddenly clamp around his foot, and like the a- agony, and and somebody helping him to pull pull up what was on his foot, and it it was one of our crewmates. Is like, ended up with him basically standing on it. Put his foot in his mouth, and, and the poor guy had died, and for them, obviously they knew that there was somebody who drowned had died and drowned, and they they brought up the yeah you know, somebody from the water of the raft, I didn't see that, so you know maybe I was saved from that, so as I crawled across the raft and I felt the limbs under me, I, I think I didn't connect it with actually being dead people, but looking back that's what it was. <sighs>
2: Why were you crawling across the raft?
1: We we're trying to get the doors to close and the the flaps of the, of the if you picture a tent, if you picture the flaps on it, that's what the doors on the life raft are like. And the ones on ours were particularly badly designed. It was an old raft, and when we brought the raft doors down, every time we fastened them, then a wave would hit them and then just blow them open again and force them open. And then more water would come in. So basically, I would go and try and find shelter across the raft, and then after a while, one of the crew would call, like Hannes or Mornay, would call and say, "Hey, oh, I need help." So I'd go back across the raft try and help seal these doors back down again and almost like a regular task in the thing I I tried to keep myself busy so when I would get to the edge of the raft and there was a a rope around the edge to try and hold on to so I would get to the edge of the raft and get my leg over the rope to get myself up out of the water because I knew I needed to be out of the water otherwise it would suck the heat out of me so I would get to there get out of the water check my collar do my suit up make sure I was all right you know try and make myself warmer and then somebody would call me back across the raft so I'd go back across the raft and give them a hand to shut the door get the doors sealed back down. Uh, all these little things to try and make yourself survive. But in retrospect, you know, they were really important that kept me fighting to survive, kept me alive.
2: That must have been one of the, you know, obviously your body's going through stuff that you can't control, but your mind, yeah. I guess, like in those situations, your mind must be something that can potentially give up on you.
1: Had, uh, maybe hypothermia is a saviour on that one. And it's, you know, the, as you slow down, As the hypothermia cuts in and you slow down, you you know, it stops you. At least you're not panicking so much. But uh, I had some very clear thoughts. You know, one I do remember was thinking about home and and my girlfriend and wondering if I'd ever have sex again. And it was just so so absurd, you know. Uh, Like Corinne and I had not been together that long. And and like just thinking that, we were so far from, you know, I was so far from like a warm bed there. It was just such a daft thought, but I can remember thinking that. And it's such a rational thought, but but the rest of the thoughts, you know, you're drifting, trying to work out how long you can survive. I couldn't see my watch because it was under so many layers, but I knew we'd abandoned, uh, like, just after four o'clock, and it was getting dark, and in the Antarctic, sub-Antarctic at that time, it was getting dark, and, you know, six o'clock had come and gone, so it was pitch black by the time, you know. By this time and I knew time had gone on but I didn't know how long and I was trying to work out if I could make it t- through till morning and I could not see how we would and um you know your mind just slows down I saw a hand around this rope next to me like as I was there and it's this, this massive hand and I it was just open it was wasn't holding on and it was so it just struck me it was so sad it was like you know you look down and you're like oh that's just so sad so I reached down and I closed the hand so that at least the person was you know I thought it was I guess in my head I knew it was somebody who's unconscious or dead or something. I just, oh, look at that. So I closed the hand and then the hand moved. Wow. And I looked up and it was Darnie, like big Darnie. And, and he looked at me and I looked at him. <laughs> there was this moment of recognition. And, and I was, oh. <laughs> so but, but both of us at that moment, you know, at least knew each other was alive. He probably wondered why I was grabbing his hand. but <laughs>
2: Oh, my God. One of the lighter moments, I guess. Yeah, yeah. What? So, people and, were know, dying that quickly that it, you guys were in the raft for only, four, well, I say only four hours. I mean, yeah, I, I say that flippantly. But so people died quite quickly.
1: Yeah. It sounds like nothing. You know, when you're a kid, you play in the snow for four hours and you come in and you've got cold hands. But when you put somebody in freezing cold water for that long, like we didn't stand a hope of surviving. How long
2: and, did, did it take until the first people you kind of noticed be?
1: Well, now what I now know about cold water shock is that probably the first people in our raft died within 15 minutes. In fact, some of them probably died instantly. By the time we were in the raft, people were probably, you know, already in trouble. The cold water shock would have hit them. And, you know, the people that I remember pulling, you know, one guy that we pulled in to the raft and I shook him and tried to get him to breathe. You know, his gasp, it would have been because he was suffering cold water shock and things. So so people would have died very quickly, but, you know, the hypothermia was then taking its toll after the cold water shock had hit. So we were losing people from the start. But Bubbles, after a few hours, had started doing these roll calls of people that he knew were in the raft. And, you know, to his credit, it woke you up and it made you answer. It made you pay attention. So you, But the roll calls were getting shorter. You know, there was one particular point when, yeah, I remember him saying, you know, like, Hannes, yes, skipper, I'm here. Like, Matt, yes, yes, skipper, I'm here. And then Butty. And Butty didn't answer. And it was his best friend, Booty. you know, and he asked again and again. And then Hannah said, he's dead, man. Stop. You know, the roll calls were getting shorter, but they were helping to keep us awake and to actually stimulate you, to stop you from lapsing into unconsciousness and giving up. I'd gone across the raft one more time to help with the uh, doors. I could not face doing it many more times, but I'd gone across one more time because somebody had asked me absurdly politely. They'd said, can you come and help me with the doors, Matt, please? And I'd gone across... And got, got help, and then we were fixing the doors and the door, we'd nearly got it. And then it was blown out of my hands. It was blown up again. So this flap was blown up in the air and I saw a light. Uh, and I was like, hold on, that's a light. No, 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 it can't be. I must be seeing things. And the waves moved and the light disappeared. And then the waves moved again. You know, it just we, we moved on the waves. And then this whole row of lights appeared and i was like i can see a light and i yelled out i didn't want us to miss it so i yelled out it's a light i can see a,
2: bo- a boat how are you i know you're saying you're yelling out but how are you getting it's dark how are you getting the attention of a boat
1: so on on your life life jackets there's a little bulb that lights up when it's in contact with the seawater so i did try oh they've thought of everything those, haven't they yeah, yeah you guys had all and the they, kit they, You know, they should work really well when you're in seawater, but all I didn't know is if you take them out of the seawater, they don't work. So when I was taking it and swinging it, every time I took it out of the water and tried to make it work, it wasn't working, so that didn't work. And then we had whistles, so I was blown on that. I had this whistle in my pocket, and my fingers were frozen. They were like little, you know, just completely rigid. But I managed to hook it out of my pocket, get it in my mouth, and I was blowing, and then it stopped working, and I blew it some more. So whistles, lights, that didn't work, you know, yelling as loud as we could. But ultimately, none of that got their attention, you know, when it turned out that a little strip of reflective material on our canopy caught the spotlight and shone back and one fisherman saw it and said they saw the raft. So they turned and came across and the swells, we heard the engine, the swells dropped us and then we felt this enormous boat draw near and when we pulled back the canopy and this boat was above us and it felt like it was going to just come down and crush us. Oh yeah, a bit. You know, after all that, we saw this row of fishermen at the top up against the spotlights and, and, you know, salvation's here. And that was probably when Bubble was died. So we, you know, he'd been doing these roll calls and basically within the last moments he'd seen the boat arrive and he'd given up and died. Oh, no. How did they get you out of the boat? So we saw this boat appear to us and the swells were lifting us up and then dropping, dropping us back down so we were nearly under the hull. I actually looked I could see the keel of the boat at one point, which is just terrifying. And then it lifted us up and I held my hands up and they tried throwing a rope to us, which is just hilarious because, of course, our fingers are frozen. I couldn't grip anything. And, they, you know, we tried at one point. I lost grip of the rope at the, one point. They let go of the rope and I ended up like with this tangled around me. I gave up and I just managed to get to the edge of the raft to put my hands up and they grabbed me, held on to me. And as the waves dropped away, I was, you know, basically left dangling in the air above the sea. And, uh, you know... Uh, Yelling, pull, 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 and they pulled me onto the boat, put me on my feet, and I fell flat on my face on the deck. (laughs) And then they basically manhandled me, took me in the inside. And what about the other guys on the boat? Uh, Some of them they managed to grab. Yeah, some of them managed to grab. And fishermen are a miracle. So some of them they managed to grab. Some of them managed to basically lasso with ropes. Later on, they were recovering bodies and in that case they were having to use the gaffs that we use for the fish you know just enormous boat hooks basically to get them on which is obviously so traumatic but they didn't want to lose the bodies so they they knew they'd died so they gaffed them on board uh, but but for the fishermen who were alive they managed to get them all out the raft with a you know a, a rope or a hand and that contrast you know one of the uh, b- before us they'd managed to find one raft so the, f- the first the other raft that was recovered was the one that Charlie the bosun had managed to To get into, and he had uh, in total, I think, fourteen of them in that life raft, and and all of them survived, and they'd managed to be basically rescued in a lot better state to actually help to get onto the boat, Uh, and on our our life raft, then seven out of the seventeen of us survived. So,
2: what about the two guys that went off on their life raft?
1: So, shakim and Carlos, you know, like they'd cut away with just them, maybe a few others, I don't know, but they had certainly a. Underloaded life raft and they cut away from the boat and drift away earlier than us and they, they i've been so annoyed at them for leaving with a, an underloaded life raft you know when we ended up ha- having overloaded you know i wish that they'd survived to tell us why and what happened but their raft was found the next day so like, overturned and, and empty so it capsized and you do wonder if they'd had more people on board maybe it wouldn't have overturned or maybe they would have survived but what happened once you got on the boat well, I did uh, scuba diving training a few years before, so I had been told that you should, uh, you know, never, you should slowly rewarm a casualty, that you should never, you know, give them hot drinks or uh, put them in hot water or anything because uh, it will give them shock, and uh, you should try and keep them horizontal and all these things. And we were, you know, this is what ha- happens when you need to, but we were hauled over the side, <laughs> put on my feet, and then dragged through, stripped, basically stripped naked uh, in a factory by, uh, by the fishermen as they just try to get all our cold clothes off wet clothes off rather than then shoved into a hot shower and I can remember thinking no 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 this is not you know you're not supposed to do this and and then going actually oh it's really nice and turning it hotter give me you know, some like hot just, soap yeah then they took us through you know t- toweled us dry and shoved some dry clothes on us and literally gave us hot soup and drinks and and I sat there thinking oh I'm not supposed to drink this but I'll go I'll have a little bit <laughs> and uh, it took I was sh- I was beyond shivering at the start you know I was so cold but vaguely remember people being brought through you know dragged through one by one luckily some of them were in a better state than me and uh can you
2: remember the name of the boat that rescued you
1: isla camilla you don't forget (laughs) sandoval the captain had heard our mayday basically cut away their line and had raced through the night to see it you know to catch us and his skill basically meant that he found us so there was no other boat within a hundred miles of us did you meet up with
2: some guys from the Isla Camilla afterwards in a pub and make some promises?
1: So we went into the pub one night, and this guy came up. I'm short; I'm five eight, but this guy comes up even shorter than me, and he says, "You know, do you do you remember me?" But I he said it in Spanish, so I didn't know he'd said that. And a girl we'd been working with that week, an agent for our boat, had, had translated, and she said, "He says, do you remember me?" And and I looked at him and I said, "Well, I said, yeah, you're you're from the Isla Camilla, aren't you?" And he said, "Yeah, but do you remember me?" He said. Oh, man, you're going to make me cry now. <laughs> he said, it was me who pulled you over the side. And then I put you on your feet and I kissed you on your cheek. And I said, thank you, God. And then I collapsed. <laughs> and uh, I didn't know what to do. So his name was Jesus Posada. And he and his friend had been the ones who pulled me over. And it, you know, it's those moments when life when you get to say stuff. So I wanted to do a gesture. So I said, if I ever have ever... A daughter, I'll call her, Camilla, after your boat. And uh, like years later, I finally got to call my daughter, Camilla. And then I finally got to tell Sandoval. I, I didn't have the details to get in contact with Jesus, uh, you know, to to see, but I asked Sandoval to do that. So I finally got to write an email to Ernesto Sandoval, the captain of the years of Camilla, saying, sent him a picture so quite magic wow your
2: daughter must love that story
1: yeah I didn't I I wanted her to know she's you know she's 13 now and uh, when the book came out I had to tell her the story I didn't tell her the first when she was first born because I you know she needed to know when she was able to comprehend but she needed to know also that she was named like out of gratitude, not out of debt. I didn't feel that, you know, the the Camilla rescued us and fishermen will, you know, help those who are in need. But I didn't, it was because I was thankful for being rescued. That I named, you know, it was a joy to name her after the boat that rescued us. They were magnificent, like all of them. So, you know, to put yourself in danger like that and just go for it, I think that was brilliant. Everybody wants to think they're going to do that in a situation. You know, you want to think you're going to, do what you can to help people but yeah they really (laughs) really did so
2: and what a story (laughs) yeah
1: yeah Yeah, it's hard that you know uh describing it now we are so far from those conditions you know there's moments when i'm talking about it and you just it feels like a different lifetime that this is Events, you know, when you're sitting in an office and you've got all the stuff that's normally going on in an office or things that are affecting business or whatever, and you think, ah, oh, this is just so stressful. And then you remember days like that, and you think that's just a different world, a different life, a different... So, so I was on that day, things happen that you... And you try and act in a way that you don't embarrass yourself. But looking back, like, it just seems like a different world.
2: Like you tell the story so well and create such a visual of what you went through you're right like even you now you struggle to think about those conditions and how yeah horrendous they are you know when you're in that boat in that life draft there's no other thing you can compare it to it's not like you can say oh do you know what this reminds me of this reminds me when i was in a in the south atlantic in a in a raft crawling over dead bodies yeah there's just nothing even remotely similar to it in your everyday life now, which is a great thing.
1: It's just the, I think one thing that stays with you is the fury of the weather and just the people talk about being at the mercy of the sea, but you are uh, nothing compared to the power of the sea but, uh, and the wind and the weather and that. And just the shrieking of the wind in the canopy as it basically felt like it was trying to tear us apart, you know, trying to just and it, if people have climbed mountains they'll have had some feeling of that cuz of you know it's the same when you're up there but but uh for us when we were there and just in that raft as it felt like it was rising up a wave and about to be flipped and then the next minute you're being pelted with so much waves it sounds like gravel on the canopy and then the next minute it just feels like you're going to be <laughs> the canopy ripped off by the wind yeah does it feel yeah, like, like that,
2: does it feel like at that point in time that it's almost like the weather and the conditions have a personality, and that wants to kill you. I, you are like just give
1: us felt a break, like that about the boat. I was at a point where I was swearing at her, and it felt like she was trying to kill me. But with the wind, I felt uh, different. I think sometimes I can picture it so clearly. It's not very, very pleasant to do to put yourself back there, you know. But sometimes you can picture it so clearly that you can be back there, horrible. It's not like the easiest process to describe in these events, but it's really important that that the people weren't forgotten, that they were were nice guys.
2: Well, I don't think people will forget this episode for a while either. And if people do want to go and buy your book, uh, I'll put the link to the book to, to buy the book and the synopsis to this episode as well. So you can just scroll down on whatever platform you're listening to and click on the link, and you can find links to our sponsors on there as well. And we'll see you again next week.